Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. As always, I'm the host, Sean Boyce. I'd like to welcome my guest to the show today, Rebecca Block, PhD and Assistant Vice President of Innovation and Improvement at Springboard. Hello, Becca. How are you? And welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. I'm doing well. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to dive more into your background and talk about topics related to strategy and innovation for nonprofits. But before we get into that, if you wouldn't mind, please share your background with us. Our audience can learn more about how you got to where you are today. Yeah, a little bit of a quirky path. Um, I uh, did a lot of work in a lot of different sectors when I first finished my undergraduate degree, realized that turns out a bachelor's degree in humanities from a liberal arts college doesn't really provide a lot of economic mobility. So I went to graduate school um, and I got my master's and PhD in rhetoric and composition, um, which essentially is the study of writing and the teaching of writing and communication, um, visual rhetoric. Um, and got a job in a tenure track position as a professor um, at a college in Florida, uh, got tenure, did all kinds of things there, built and established their writing center, um, uh, helps with a lot of uh, their sort of efforts and how do you assess third space programs. So like writing centers, tutoring centers, things that are outside the classroom, but meant to support the classroom. And by virtue of doing that inside my work as a college professor, got referred into doing some consulting for nonprofit organizations that were looking for support um, in a similar way. How could they assess what they were doing in schools when they were not the only variable affecting what was happening um, in schools? Um, And ended up getting recruited away by one of those nonprofits um, that was really values aligned with me, um, even though I had worked really hard to get tenure. So sometimes I look back on that and I go, why exactly? There's so so little job security these days. (laughs) Why did I do that? Um, But started working for an organization called The Future Project um, that I really loved working for, where I was focused. I was their VP of research and evaluation. So I was really focused on how do we understand, measure, prove, and improve the impact um, of these programs that are working primarily in high schools. Um, While I was there, um, I got referred into, I I started to develop more and more awareness of innovation work. So we brought in someone who uh, had strong connections with SY Partners and really strong design background who came in and really introduced us to design thinking, innovation work. And I ended up realizing that it was really resonant with a lot of the research methods I'd actually studied as part of my graduate degree. So different names, um, but very similar methods in terms of orientation to ethnographic um, research methods, talking with people, observing the behaviors that people actually engage in, using that to determine um, what uh, was going on and what was needed. Um, And so I started to help more and more with innovation efforts um, within that organization. And as part of that, got referred to Springboard Collaborative when they were then looking for someone to um, lead innovation efforts here. Um, So when I started here, I was doing a hybrid of both innovation and evaluation efforts. And now I'm responsible um, exclusively for innovation improvement and using that, you know, mixture of lean and um, design thinking, human-centered design, um, innovation methods to make sure both of the new things we create um, generate value and impact and are financially sustainable uh, for all of our stakeholders. Um, And that the existing things, programs and services that we already have are improved in ways that that increase that value and financial sustainability and impact. So that's my kind of long story <laughs> as, to, as to how I got here and the sort of weird um, mixture of experiences that, that landed me here. Very cool. And thank you for sharing. As you can imagine, I have a ton of questions, pretty much just about everything that you said there, but we will work forward from 
uh, where you know some of the topics that I definitely want to talk more about with you, probably a, a good first place to start would be, can you tell us a little bit more about Springboard? Who is Springboard? What does Springboard do? Kind of the programs, obviously it's a nonprofit, but love to learn a little bit more about the company. Uh, and then we can talk more about the work that you do. Yeah. So Springboard Collaborative um, is focused on getting children to reading at grade level by fourth grade. Um, so that's our that's the primary focus as an organization. Um, we're a national organization. We work with schools primarily in out-of-school time programming, um, so after school and in the summer, um, to, for, to support them in delivering programs or to have us, you know, hired to actually manage um, delivering programs that uh, bring families, educators, and kids together to set reading goals work on those reading goals with practice um, that includes the families as part of the practice, and then celebrate the achievement of those goals at the end. Um, so that's the that's the short version of what we do. Um, and overall, that commitment is because we're invested in closing the opportunity gap. We know that if children don't have the, the requisite literacy skills to um, by fourth grade to be able to read adeptly, that's really when you start switching from learning to read to reading to learn. And then you very rapidly fall behind and you no longer have the, the requisite literacy skills to access life's opportunities. Um, so that's the, the sort of reasoning behind the focus on literacy that's really important to Springboard. Excellent. Obviously, you know, an incredible mission. Uh, it's exciting to learn more about the progress that you have made. And I also love to kind of learn more about any particular programs that Springboard offers specifically for your clients in this case, which are kids. Uh, so I think the client profile is kind of up to, is it up to fourth grade? So you help everyone younger than that. And then can you talk a little bit more about the programs that provide this help? Yeah, so we're usually working with uh, public school districts or charter networks that have Title I schools. Um, so those are schools that have been uh, identified as um, where the student population is struggling more. They're often, they're under-resourced um, systematically and financially. Um, and so we're, those are often the schools that, that, those are the schools that we're most often working with. So we're, we're trying to work primarily with those schools that the students are struggling um, due to those structural challenges. Um, so our, our buyer in terms of, you know, who we're directly talking with and working with are usually leaders at the district or superintendent um, or charter network level. So superintendents, assistants, superintendents, assistants to the CEO, those types of um, positions. Those are usually the ones that are deciding whether or not to bring Springboard programming in. Um, and Springboard offers a few different programs, um, but all of them share in common that it's five to 10 weeks of out of school time, although a few schools have adapted it to use it in school time. Um, but generally, it's five to 10 weeks of out of school time where um, families are specifically recruited to join based on whatever the, the local um, school or you know, network and district overall decides is the where they want to focus their efforts. Um, and then once the families are in and the educators are in, the educators get training on how to do the program, including science of reading, um, you know, focus for literacy and best practices and family engagement. And then the teachers, the families and the kids are working together to set a reading goal and practice um, over the course of that five to 10 weeks. The teacher works directly with the students um, and then the teachers, families, and students come together actually for workshops to work together, all three of them, so that the families are learning more skills on how they can support their kids. Um, one of the things that was most moving to me actually when I first started uh, finding out about Springboard Collaborative and was considering working here was seeing the feedback from families who had frequently felt like 
that because their literacy levels were not where they wanted to be, or they were self-conscious about their own education, or maybe English was a second, third, fourth, fifth language for them. And they were, they felt like that they couldn't help their kids. They felt like you had to be an expert or you had to have a certain education level, a certain knowledge level. And hearing these families talk about, you know, I went to this one, one hour workshop and realized there was something I could do that would help my kid. And it didn't require, you know, this kind of extra degrees or a whole big effort um, and how meaningful and moving that was to those families to change their narrative from, I can't help my kid to, oh, actually I can help my kid. I don't have to be an expert to help my kid um, was just really powerful to me. A lot of literacy programs just focus on the teacher directly engaging with the student and making sure that the student learns new skills. And that's extremely important and valuable. Um, and that's you know part of what Springboard's program does. But what's really unique to me and, and that I really appreciate about it is that it's also focused on um, families feeling empowered and, and activated to really feel like they can make a difference in their children's education. And they can help their kids regardless of what's happening in the classroom. That's an incredible story. And obviously some very important work. And I also like the perspective that Springboard's taking in terms of making impact also outside the classroom, talking about in the home, right? And the relationship between parents or the, I should say the parent and the student or the parent to the child. Uh, it's very interesting. A lot of areas to make improvement. Can you talk to me more about, you know, your work in particular, which uh, falls within innovation? It sounds like quite a bit strategy and innovation. Talk a lot about, you know, with our nonprofit leaders, this effort to try to scale impact, right? Uh, so we know more about the program that Springboard offers. Love to hear more about the work that you do, uh, the innovative concepts or strategies and how that might relate to product of some sort or software or technology, but really the things that you are trying to do, what's top of mind for you, challenges that you're solving and uh, in an effort to try to scale this impact. Yeah, I think one of the things that's most interesting to me about thinking about innovation in social impact spaces, you you want to innovate in order to help solve the problem at the scale at which it exists, right? So um, if you, different resources will say different numbers, but at a minimum, there's around two and a half million children um, within the United States who are not going to be able to read at grade level at fourth grade. And we know that that's going to have negative impacts on their lives and, and on not just their education, but their lives after their K-12 education is complete. Um, that's a big scale. Right now, Springboard serves um, each year students, you know, in the realm of tens of thousands, right? Not in the realm of millions. Um, and in order to think about how to scale and support that kind of problem at that sort of level, it you have to innovate, right? So Springboard was was founded off of directly managing programs with school partners. And that is a very heavy model to scale, right? So it's a model that we want to always continue to offer because it's core to our DNA and realize that if you're talking about 2.5 million kids, a program that costs, you know, um, that, that has that much heavy infrastructure, costs that much money, does all the things that go with it is not the thing that can scale to meet that kind of problem. There are going to be some who always will want that sort of program and that will be wonderful. And we need other solutions for people who don't want that level of intensive program. So what I focus on in innovation is both the kind of, um, I'm a big fan of, actually, I have it right here, <laughs> the Invincible Company, um, one of strateg the Strategizer series in general, um, and 
this book in particular. So uh, the way that they talk about sustaining versus transformative innovation, I find really useful. Um, and thinking about the, that sustaining innovation is okay for the same problem and the same market. So we're still talking district and charter network buyers. We're still talking about it being implemented by schools on school grounds in response to the problems that they have and are trying to solve. Still, there are other things that we can create for that same um, market that our existing programs serve um, that will fit other districts and networks within the market that our current programming couldn't fit because it's either too complicated or it's too expensive or it's not the right fit for what they're focused on, right? So so that's one piece of innovation that um, my team focuses on is thinking about, okay, well, what are the other, where, where's the biggest unmet need right now for that buyer that still fits all the things that we've learned about what is meaningful and has impact and has value for educators and families that are participating. And then another area that we focus on is the more transformative innovation, right? What other, if we're not just talking about going to districts and networks, if we are trying to think about other ways of solving this problem, it may not just be through things that districts and charter networks implement. It might be through looking at um, graduate schools that are educating teachers. Is it about you know creating something that is for them so that it's so that it's shifting the way that teachers are even thinking about their approach to literacy and family engagement as they enter their careers? Or is it um, an app that goes directly to families that helps them understand where their children's reading level is and what they can do about it to help their children, um, you know, get to where they need to be and help the family member feel comfortable communicating effectively with their children's teacher. Um, so all of those things would still keep the theme that is essential to the springboard of helping with uh, setting and achieving learning goals in a collaborative way between families and educators um, and kids. but not always with the same structure that our existing programming has of you sell something to a district or network, they implement it and cascade it down. It's a program, um, you know, so trying to figure out what those other things are. And generally we use, you know, pretty standard lean methods um, to, to kind of quickly identify and try to test things out um, and figure out what direction is going to be the most useful one to go in. I think you've done a great job of articulating not just the process, but the challenge, right? So as you described earlier on, the like systemic problem and the size in which that exists and the current capacity that you have available now to combat that is at a very different level than where you would ultimately like it to be as such. That's where you laser focus, right? And we're talking about you know 10 to 100x scale, which is significant. And as you described, the implementation of existing solutions that either we may you know currently have to offer or what have you, they may not really be able to truly reach that kind of level of scale in the time in which you would like them to be able to do so. And they may not be the right format. There's all of these other elements involved with trying to bring more, more scale in terms of impact to everybody that is expected to benefit from what we're hoping to achieve, right? So you mentioned a couple of methodologies already. Uh, excited about that. Of course, we see a lot of that in the for-profit private enterprise world, but much more excited about that starting to make its way around the nonprofit uh, sector as well also, because there's a lot of value, I think, that those types of processes and strategies can really offer. I'd love to get your take on as well also, like what role software and technology has played in uh, any of these opportunities that you've evaluated thus far. Like, Have you explored any of those? Are you in the process of doing so? And what does your process look like in terms of considering really the solutions in terms of like, how to reach 100x without just growing, you know, incrementally, um, you know, via the options that you currently have. 
Yeah, I think you have to consider software and technology if you're considering large scale, right? It's it's one of the cheapest and easiest ways that exists in modern culture to reach a lot of people relatively cheaply. Um, and so certainly we have been looking at that. We have a um, web app called Connect that we use to support families and, and the engagement between teachers and families. Um, and I think one of the challenges that we've certainly run into, and I'm sure that we are not the only one that has, is that the families that we most want to help are also often the ones that have the least action. And I think there's sort of a, a myth that exists right now that, well, that was a problem, but the digital divide is over, right? Like now, especially in response to COVID, you know, Wi-Fi was pushed out everywhere. People were given access to more internet. People were given devices sent home from schools. So that, and that's true. It closed it for some people, but the reality of actual where the internet access comes from and that frequently what we see is that families, their only source of internet access is their smartphone and they have a limited data plan and they don't want to use that data plan on the, you know, extra thing to do with their kid to help their, right? Like that's not what they want to use their data on. That's not, or, or more importantly, many of them are, are saying like, I don't want my kid's info. I don't want my kid on that screen or to be sitting down doing a screen when I'm spending time with my kid, I want it to be without a screen or I don't want data about me and my family to be used, um, especially about my kids, right? It's one thing about me as an adult, but another thing about, you know, data about my kids being used. So there's, there's all of these issues that come up when you start thinking about software and tech to solve the problem that coincides with poverty and systemic racism and all kinds of structural oppressive forces that mean that the exact people that we most want to help are also the ones that have the least access to the kind of cheap, easy to use, all, all that kind of stuff, right? It's, yeah. So that, that is the piece that we, I could go on a long rant. I'm going to try not to, um, that, that we have to think really carefully about, not just from the level of well, it's just about access. Let's make sure that we partner with, you know, organizations that get internet out there and that get devices out there. Um, but it is also about ethics. There is a really strong history in our country and most countries in the world of misusing the information of the most marginalized people in society um, and treating it as if that's just fine, that that's the source of research and not really thinking deeply and ethically about how that information is used and how people um, are engaged in that. Um, and so I think that that's really imperative to consider when you're when you're looking at technological solutions is is not only access but also desire and ethics. Um, and so the, the combination of those things means that at least on my team we don't exclusively focus on what's the tech solution that we can come up with to meet this problem, but rather how is tech going to fit into the solution and what are other deliberately non-tech um, solutions that we can think of for those who will uh, either never have the access or never want the tech to be the way that they that they solve that particular problem. I hope that doesn't sound too much like I just got on a soapbox and ranted at you, but um, those are some of the things that we're thinking about. No, that's very important topics that you brought up, right? Because I think it's especially easy to fall into the trap of thinking software and technology can solve everything, right? Uh, instead, we should be thinking of it more just like any other tool, right? There's a time and a place, but the application has to make sense, right? Because trying to force anything not necessarily going to drive the desired outcome. Uh, you've articulated well that there are other things to consider than just producing a product that might be able to help. But if 
there are things standing in the way of people gaining access to it, the infrastructure, then you've got a different problem, right? So uh, that may require a different solution. So there's a lot more to think through being more methodical about this process and doing your discovery so that you know, basically, what are my available options to pull from as I'm thinking about scaling impact, right? Uh, equitable solutions that uh, can be made available to those that need it most. So I think that's excellent context. Thank you for sharing. Um, next topic I wanted to pick your brain about was related to what I refer to kind of the funding problem that it, that nonprofits experience and somewhat unique to nonprofits that others may not be totally aware of. But this instance where donors and the interest for people doing great work like yourself are misaligned by almost the way kind of the structure is set up where some funding comes with strings attached. And as part of the work that you're doing following processes like lean startup methodologies and things like that, you may uncover bigger problems worth solving going through the process of leveraging your expertise to identify how do I make the biggest impact. But then it's like uh, becomes disconnected from what the original plan was to gain access to the capital. So that can be a little bit of a cyclical trap of sorts that nonprofits sometimes find themselves in. Curious if you've experienced it and or any of the strategies or recommendations you have for folks to think through you know, doing their best to not let that stand in the way of what you can do to make the biggest impact. Yeah, this is something I've thought about a lot and and taken several different angles on. So one piece is that I try to collaborate actively with our um, development team around what it is that we're putting in our language to funders. So it is still true. I think I think there is, I've seen a change being in the nonprofit industry sector for you know the last six years or so, I've seen a change just in the last six years in terms of the level of openness that more funders have about innovative mindsets and how are you going to, con- you know, I see more references, things like continuous learning or how are you going to test or how are you going to iterate? Right? So I see more of that actually coming up in funding proposals, which I think is really promising. I wonder how much of an influence Anne May Ching's book Lean Impact had on the sector and, you know, other um, sort of influences like that. Um, I hope and I think that that's had a positive um, result. And so I want to I name that growth. as like, that's one thing that makes it easier for me to do this now than it was six years ago when I'd be sitting with the you know dev team at the last nonprofit that I was at trying to figure out like, what are we going to say that we're doing in five years? And it's like, well, we shouldn't know what we're doing in five years. If we knew what the solution was, the solution would already be out there. Um, you know, so... So it has gotten a bit better. That's one piece. What I've noticed, though, is that it seems to have sort of merged into that existing culture in philanthropy of, but you still have to plan it all out and show us your really detailed plan, right? And so now it's instead of showing your five-year plan of exactly how are you going to get there in five years, show us your five-year plan for what you're going to iterate and test. And, and so, so it still becomes this kind of like, well... I don't, I can only gameplay that out so far, right? I can tell you, okay, here's the current hypotheses we're testing. And if those turn out to be wrong, then probably they're going to be wrong in one of these directions. And we're going to iterate in this way. But once I get about two iterations away, if I could tell you what it was that we'd be doing, then it would be dumb for us to be doing that, right? Like the point of the testing is to learn something you haven't already thought of and therefore do a new thing. Um, And so there is still, even though now it's, well, how are you going to test it's still like, how are you going to test over the next three years? I'm like, well, I can tell you how I'm going to test over the next few months. I would be doing a bad job of my job if I could tell you how we we're going to test over the next three years. Um, so except for the level of very high principles, right? And then you end up writing very vague things. So one of the things that we've been working on is 
Is there another way to engage with funders? Because funders have a very real legitimate problem. They need to make sure that they are ethically and responsibly using the resources that they are responsible for putting out into the world following whatever the principles are of the given you know, foundation or organization, right? So they need to make sure that there are metrics they can follow, that they can hold people accountable to. They need things that they can measure and talk about. They need to be able to evaluate and compare apples to oranges. All those are real things. I'm not trying to deny the reality of that. If we can provide alternate ways of looking at that, right? So for instance, we're adapting not original principles from innovation accounting, right? But what we're what we're trying out is, okay, if we establish what our innovation accounting baseline is for our learning quotient and our experiment velocity and our you know, team happiness, I think is very useful internal indicator, less so for something that, to show to an external, but for learning quotient experiment velocity, right? If we can establish baselines for that, where are we when we're doing this well? Then that could potentially be something. So we've just started this last month of like starting to establish our baseline. So that the idea being that then in our documents to funders, we could say, here's what you can hold us to account for. You can hold us to account that we are going to, that at least 80% of the, the hypotheses that we test, we will have a clear result on. We will either have invalidated or validated hypothesis. You can hold us to account for constructing our tests responsibly enough that we are getting clear results. And you hold us to account that we will conduct at least X number of experiments within a given quarter that we're reporting on results for you, right? So that there's still those clear and objective metrics, but that they're grounded in the things that we're actually trying to hold ourselves to account um, for rather than this dissociation between what well, we promised you that we would pilot with 2000 families this year but actually we realized we shouldn't be at a piloting stage because we need to do a whole bunch of pivoting of the thing that we thought was going to be at a piloting stage by now, right? So like that's an example of a pickle that we've gotten into of, you know, okay, well, we had to plan it out three years. And so we had to estimate what we think is going to take about one year of pivoting and iterating and prototyping and then, you know, pilot at this scale. We were wrong. The pivoting and the iterating and prototyping has required more pivoting um, than we expected. And so we're not piloting in a year that we had committed to. And that then requires a, a conversation. Um, and so that's the, the other piece um, that I think kind of circles back to the beginning is engaging in open conversations with funders. I think the more of us within the nonprofit and social impact space that engage in honest conversations with our funders to the degree that's possible to say, hey, listen, we're not going to hit this metric. As soon as you realize you're not gonna, we're not going to hit this metric we've committed to. And here's why. This is what we've learned and said. This is why. We think that taking it in this direction instead of doubling down on the plan we gave you before is the right thing to actually help solve this problem that we're all invested in solving in. Um, what I found is more funders than used to be the case will have that conversation. It is still scary. <laughs> it's, it's not it's not a guarantee. And it is still a like, oh, that's not a territory you want to be in. Let's write it up front so we don't have to go there. Um, but that's that's another piece that I found to be really crucial to addressing that funding problem is that if we don't if we're not willing to kind of open the doors a little bit and have those candid conversations with funders, it's not going to change. It does not matter if Anne Mae Ching and other wonderful people like her go and give lots of talks at the Aspen Institute and everywhere, right? And all these influence, you know, all you're doing is influencing the ideas and people don't see how that's playing out in the nuts and bolts of their grant agreements, um, then it's not going to change. And those conversations, I think. Uh, are really crucial to to making that change happen. That's excellent feedback and a really innovative insight into it. I like the perspective that you're sharing in terms of like evolving the conversation 
right? Because uh, you shared a great resource, um, Mean Impact by Anne May Chang, which is one of my favorite books, especially dives into this one in good detail. But uh, as you're describing how this is playing out, it's interesting to, to kind of see how it evolves and what we'd encourage others to do more of, right? Have those open, candid conversations about it so that people have an understanding of how these things are being played out in practice, right? And the fact that there is more impact to be made if we adjust our approach, but at the same time, you can still maintain a certain level of insight. It just might open up more freedom and flexibility to be experimental and innovative uh, in an area where it's going to make the biggest impact, right? Rely on the leaders and industry like yourself who are seeing the data and are making the adjustments as the opportunities come up. So uh, that's excellent feedback. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, thank you for being here. I, I have only two questions for you before we let you go. Uh, we've mentioned a few of them already, but I want to ask if there are any others. Are there any resources in particular that you would share with the audience where they can go to learn more about really anything we talked about here or anything else you might recommend? Yeah, so I reference Strategizer. I usually find their stuff just useful overall, their books, their website, um, a lot of their their resources. I know they also offer more expensive consulting. I haven't done that, but just just the, the, the books and the resources you can get for free, I found to be very useful um, in thinking things through. Mentioned Lean Impact and Lean Started Up, both of those I found to be very useful books. Um, and then in particular, there uh, is an organization called Equity Meets Design, uh, and they have a number of professional development opportunities, and they're, they're, they have a free one that you can go through asynchronously at your own pace. Um, I just dropped the link into the chat so that you can share that later. Well, that goes to the particular stage in it that I'm at, but you can backtrack from the link. Um, sure. I, I really have found their resource to be incredibly thoughtful at looking at that intersection of what is valuable about um, design thinking and lean and, and those sorts of approaches and really thinking meaningfully about equity. Because the history of design is not one that we should overlook. Anybody that's involved in innovation, it is, it is the background is one of white cis men sitting in rooms deciding what should happen for other people who are not there, right? Um, now, that's not where it is now, but that history is still baked into a lot of the processes and techniques and methods and whatever of, of kind of like, I'm the observer, I'm the decider, I'm the expert, you're the person I'm learning about or making something for, right? And that is a just perpetually destabilizing dynamic to be in. Um, and so I really appreciate um, the equity meets design work at just really putting out interesting questions, reframes, resources to stop and think about um, the ways that you can deliberately use all the things that are wonderful about, you know, human-centered design and similar methods. And to deliberately question and unsettle and redirect them um, with equity in mind. Um, so that's another resource that I just am, I'm just a really big fan of um, and wanted to make sure to share. Um, there's a lot of other great resources out there, podcasts that I listen to, people whose newsletters I follow, um, but I don't want to just become like a litany of <laughs> listening. Oh, we love listening. it. <laughs> if there's uh, others you think of too. Even ones you haven't specifically mentioned, you mentioned some excellent ones. We'll link to all of those. Anything else you think we should include as well, too? Uh, even um, those you might other, not mention, we can, we can add. Yeah, the, I mean, the other two that I will that I will just shout out um, okay. is um, Daniel Stillman. He has a podcast um, and he has books as well, but around sort of intentional design of conversations, which you might think like, well, that seems really niche until you realize that conversations are actually how you accomplish almost everything. Um, 
And so his his work I've found to be really interesting and useful. Um, and his I've done some of his professional development I've found it to be really interesting and useful. Um, and then uh, Jay Malone, who has an organization called New Haircut, he has a, a newsletter that he just puts out that's actually very short and he offers um, Ask Me Anything sessions and other professional development things. Um, but in terms of really being thoughtful about uh, specific like sprint and design um, principles, I've found his stuff to be really useful. And he's also just a, a very nice guy. I respond periodically to his newsletter and he always writes back. <laughs> um, so uh, I think those are the, the, the two other resources that I regularly uh, look at and, and get insight from. Excellent suggestions. Thank you. We will link to those as well, too. I've started being um, more active with my email marketing effort as well, too, and interacting with folks. So that is a untapped resource, in my opinion. It's a channel that you know, I think some people hear an email newsletter and they get nervous or skeptical because there's a lot of bad email newsletters out there, but some there really are. good ones. And you mentioned one where it's like, it's engaging, it's thoughtful, it's short and sweet, it's to the point. And when yeah. you respond, it's like having a personal one-on-one conversation. And most of the time you are. So that's, yeah. um, that's an area that I would encourage folks to, to do more homework as well, too, and take advantage of some of these resources. Thank you, Becca. Um, last question I have for you is who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch? Yeah, I always love having conversations about this stuff. So if you want to have a conversation about any of the things that I have mentioned, I'm happy to have you reach out to me. My calendar is generally a hot mess. So it might take me a couple of weeks to be able to actually have a conversation. Um, but especially if it's about the way that we're approaching innovation work at Springboard, um, you can feel free to reach out to me at my Springboard um, email address, which is just r.block at springboardcollaborative.org. Um, if it's about things that are that are more general, um, not particular to the work at Springboard, or you're you're just curious even about the like, wait, how did you get from being an academic to <laughs> doing innovation work, right? Um, then then reaching out to me through LinkedIn is probably the most useful uh, way to do that. So my LinkedIn profile is just the LinkedIn Rebecca Block. Um, so standard LinkedIn profile, um, but that's probably the best way to reach out to me if it's not something particular to the work that I do at Springboard Collaborative. Excellent. Thank you for sharing, Becca. We will link to that as well, too. Thank you for being here and having a very insightful conversation and spending the time. All right. Have a great day, Sean. It was nice to talk with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Product Launch. I hope you got value out of it. I like to feature product people on my podcast because that's who I love to help. I'm a product strategist, and I can help you scale your business and grow your profit through a product. If you'd like to learn more about how I can help you, email me at sean at nextstep.io. That's sean, S-E-A-N, at nextstep, N-X-T-S-T-E-P dot I-O. Or visit my website at nextstep.io. That's N-X-T-S-T-E-P dot I-O. Hey folks, Sean here, and thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. If you did, I'd encourage you to also sign up for my free five-day email course about launching a profitable B2B SaaS application for less than $750. If you'd like to sign up for that course, you can do so at nextstep.io forward slash B2B SaaS.